Hi everyone, and welcome to the Financial House Podcast. Today, we have with us Mr. Kelvin Lee. He's the co-founder and CEO of Funnel. A former investment banker turned entrepreneur, Kelvin was previously in JP Morgan, covering clients in North and Southeast Asia. Since inception in 2015, Funnel has raised over 1.8 billion USD, over 34 transactions completed to date. Looking back on your career today, how do you see the dots connect? I think the way I think about my career has always been about the right time, the right place. Um, you know, I graduated from the National University of Singapore back in 2008. Uh, I remember it's a month before Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, and yet, like uh, you know, being uh, you know from from a finance uh, or business management background, we still all uh, pursued a career in investment banking. Um, and that's how I started uh, my journey, right? even though it was kind of like the worst of times to join the industry. But having done my time in traditional finance also taught me a lot of lessons, including being able or being fortunate enough to see um, the rise and fall of the equity, equity capital markets in, in, in the region. I was also able to work on, uh, or have been part of uh, interesting IPOs in Singapore, such as the Manchester United listing when they were pursuing it here as well as the uh, Formula 1 IPO when they were also on their roadshow in uh, Singapore. So having done my time in traditional finance, having seen some of the deals that came and went in Singapore, I also realised that without having the experience uh, that I did in JP Morgan, I wouldn't have started Funnel. People don't get a choice to, to choose where they start their career in, but what we must remember is that uh, things happen for a reason and there's always learning opportunity for anyone that's young um, and you don't really get to... Um, say whether or not you learn something until you fully set your mind into absorbing every piece of information that you come across in your in whatever career that you're in right now right so yes the dots did the dots did connect uh, for me uh, in my during my 25 year old self even though you know i did tough times i did uh, long hours in traditional banking but without that experience uh, it would have been tough for me to be uh, where i am now so kelvin if you could go back in time and give your 25 year old self one piece of advice mm. what would that be I think for me personally, the 25-year-old self was a bit reckless, uh, really, really kept wanting to do all-nighters, uh, push myself to, uh, to the limits and really pursued um, this investment banking um, profession to the best of uh, what my body could take. Uh, but having done that, I also realized it was super unhealthy. I didn't have good perspective of what I was there for. So the best piece of advice I could give myself then was to really um, focus on the why, like why am I doing this? Why? What is in it for, for me in the long term? And you know, what do I really want to to get to in the end? And having that goal in mind would definitely teach me to prioritize uh, some things over the others. Yeah. So from JP Morgan to startup fund founder at Funnel, was the transition a hard one for you? It was, you know, this whole journey since I left uh, JP uh, back in twenty fourteen has really been a journey about self-discovery. So it's not really you know, hard. I mean, obviously, uh, financially, it's different. Um, the types of uh, challenges that you face are, are you know, going to be very different from what uh, bankers would face in their day-to-day -day jobs as well. Running a company is literally like giving birth to uh, your own um, child and really making sure that the child survives, right? But beyond all these you know, typical challenges that people talk about starting your own uh, company, what I realized was that the biggest change is that I had to deal with uh, learning about myself. Uh, this whole journey is a journey of self-discovery, finding out what drives me beyond just money, uh, money uh, returns. Uh, it's really about why am I doing this? Uh, why did I leave a uh, you know, decent job to, to pursue this? What difference am I making? Uh, I think now with uh, two kids, 
you know, it's really about answering the question of what am I going to tell my kids I do for a living, right? Like, why, why does it matter to them if I make, you know, $10,000 a month versus $40,000 a month versus even more? What, what is the value or point of this money, right? Um, and I think uh, with, with Funnel, it's really about making a difference to the capital markets in our region. It's really about rebuilding that capital markets for the next generation of entrepreneurs uh, that will stay private, that will choose to stay private longer, if not forever. And therefore, by being private, these companies, which are everyday companies around us, uh, playing an important role in our, our community, they're not investable to the traditional investor. So how do I get these companies access to growth capital? beyond just, you know, usual, typical lending and borrowing. And, uh, you know, how do I get the next generation of millennial investors a chance to invest our money into such companies around us, right? So being um, that platform, being the ecosystem that will make a difference to the companies around us is really what uh, we started Final for. So what advice do you have for a young finance graduate today who is thinking of leaving their finance job to launch their own startup. I think, you know, connecting the dots is, is one thing, but shoehorning is, uh, shoehorning yourself into a career that used to be good is an entirely different matter. So what I mean by that is that if I, so I mentioned that, you know, I had, uh, you know, I was in the right, t- right place at the right time, having done the right deals that shaped my thinking. But if I were to be given a choice to start it again now and given uh, the state of the equity capital markets in the region, I really don't think that I would have shoehorned myself into starting uh, a career in traditional banking. I think it was announced yesterday late night that uh, Deutsche Bank is restructuring its entire uh, investment banking business. Um, you know, in, in, if you were a young finance graduate and you are still pursuing traditional banking, trying to get into the same uh, industries that used to give you the best learning and, you know, best exit opportunities, I think, uh, you know, we might need to evaluate, reevaluate your, your longer-term horizons, uh, longer-term objectives, and really think about what you want to do um, with your life before, before deciding to pursue a traditional career. Yeah. Any suggestions as to which industries would be attractive to you at this point in time? There is no right or wrong. Uh, I think in every, everyone is different. But I think the main uh, asset as a young person uh, that you have it's really your youth and therefore your time and energy. And you're only young uh, once and you only have an un- unencumbered lifestyle without family, without you know, kids, uh, I guess once, hopefully. Um, and therefore use that time uh, not to maximize your monthly income. I think that monthly income, $1,000 more, $2,000 more a month is really um, uh, not as important and not as uh, valuable as really learning the right uh, skill sets and life lessons and making the right connections uh, that will really further your, your self-development and hori- your, your broaden your thinking, right? So I think use that time when you're young to really learn as opposed to be hung up on like which job pays me you know, $1,000 more a month because if that job is a dead-end job and will be replaced by you know, the future machine, then maybe you're not learning the right skill set. Uh, that will future-proof you for the next 20 years, right? And I think the saddest thing is when you see um, professionals in their 40s and 50s uh, with a high uh, monthly income, but not being able to retool themselves for the uh, new economy and therefore making them quite unemployable because uh, to the new employers, I could get someone that is maybe one-third the price. Why do I need to buy or pay for someone that is... uh, so experienced, but in an industry that's not exactly relevant these days, right? So, 
So Kevin, let's talk a bit about personal finance. Sure. How old were you when you first started investing? Do you remember the first investment that you made? Yeah, I do actually. So one of the first uh, deals I made was in this uh, Singapore listed Singapore Exchange listed company. Uh, I'm still invested in it now. Uh, it was taken private many years back, but it's paying me good dividends. Um, I do, yeah. So I was, uh, I think, 19 years old. So tell me more about your personal investment strategy. Sure. So I think, uh, you know, investment objectives and investment mandates uh, between people uh, differs between persons, but more importantly, differs between age groups. So what I mean by that is think about the, you know, investors that first invested in a company like Singapore Airlines many years back when it, when it first went public. These investors uh, were not investing in a stable, you know, dividend-paying airline. Uh, they were in fact investing in growth and risk. So it's really about high risk, emerging airline could fail anytime in an emerging country in Singapore, right? And yet these uh, investors during that time took a risk on, on the company. And however, as they age, their investment objectives also shifted away from growth and risk into wealth preservation. And therefore coinciding the rise of business trust and REITs in, in I guess, the Singapore markets and shifting their, their assets into investing in such uh, you know, yield-based instruments, right? And however, as these people age, um, the younger generation of investors did not uh, come on board to replace this, um, this, this bunch of investors. Therefore, like I mentioned or alluded to earlier on, that there's a missing generation of investors that are currently not invested in the capital markets for growth. And therefore, if uh, one thing I know, I guess, from having uh, invested in I think nine uh, Singapore listed companies over the past uh, yeah, close to 20 years that I've been investing. The seven of the nine companies on the, uh, on the SGX that I've invested in have been taken private. As a young investor, I would really only pursue growth companies. I wouldn't care about dividend paying companies. As a young person, the only thing I have on my side is, is time. And therefore, I really should be chasing the, the deals that give me not just you know 5%, 6% returns, but really about can I make my money double? Uh, can, I make, can I make investments in companies like uh, Impossible Foods, SpaceX that would really make a difference to my portfolio, right? Uh, you know, there was a, an article published recently about an investor who invested $100,000 in Uber. When it went IPO, I think the guy is worth like over 30 mil. For instance, such companies would really make a difference, right? However, like most, like most young people, I did not probably have, you know, $100,000 to invest in a single company. And therefore, the only way to do that is to put my 100000 into professionally managed private equity funds, right? And I think that's where uh, Funnel's uh, technology and platform comes into play, whereby even at $100,000, most professionally run private equity funds will struggle to take on board my, my, my money as an LP uh, because of costs. But with our tech platform, we can go as low as $50,000 per investor uh, and to feed that 50000 into a fund, that will then deploy into uh, private, equity private equity companies and give you as a young person private equity-like returns on the risk-reward uh, horizon. Yeah, so I think that's really how we play it. So allocating my money into private equity as opposed to public equity, not going to yield and dividend stocks as a young person and really just making sure, about, uh, making sure I know what my longer-term plans are. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that for a young investor who's about 25 to 30 years old today, he shouldn't be focusing on yield stocks, but the emphasis should be on growth stocks. 
Yes, I think emphasis on growth stocks. If not now, then when? You're not going to take a risk when you are 60 years old and you need your retirement funds. I think that's really um, not the time to play with growth and risk. Um, I think uh, for most people, we can always earn you know the hundred thousand back again over time as long as you don't you're not too uh, you're frugal and you don't go live beyond your your means. The only young ones, I think that's the most important point. Yeah. So for a young twenty five year old investor in Singapore, what's the easiest way to get access to these growth stocks? Like I mentioned, like you know, if I had hundred thousand dollars, I wouldn't put the full hundred thousand dollars into a single company, a single growth risk company. I would rather diversify the $100,000 into a portfolio that's managed professionally uh, into a basket of uh, private equity type opportunities that previously was, was not accessible uh, to the average investor based on, the, risk, uh, based on the, the, the cost it took for traditional fund managers to onboard US and LP. Um, and I think that's how uh, you know, stock picking, or you know, really not about alpha creation, but beta allocation for, for most guys into private equity uh, really works, right? So I think there was a report about, um, that came out earlier this month about Vanguard uh, exploring, pursuing in a, a private equity allocation to their funds, uh, so much so that it reduces the cost of access to private equity. And I think uh, with many research reports recently um, published, I think, uh, by the Wall Street Journal, that you know, if you think about Back then, in two thousand, sorry, in nineteen ninety five, if a regular investor wanted to make seven point five percent return on the overall portfolio, they would have to allocate just one hundred percent into corporate bonds, right? And they would make seven point five percent. That was back in nineteen ninety five. But in two thousand and five, if a, if the average investor did not have uh, slightly more uh, risky exposure into, you know, the emerging economies, you know, BRICs, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China at the time. Uh, one would struggle to make uh, 7.5%. Uh, but in 2015, that same report suggests that uh, if you don't have a 12% allocation into private equity, which most of us didn't, then we would struggle to actually make that same 7.5% return, really because public market returns are shrinking. Um, there is, uh, it's really about, uh, it's a race to the bottom about who can get me the, the same basket of uh, public listed stocks at the lowest cost, right? So it really isn't about um, expanding your, your portfolio now, it's really about allocation, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you have two kids. How do you plan to set your children up for investing success? What advice would you give to them? when they were born you know set aside the money into the, um, the child development account so by the government actually matches uh, money that you put in and therefore gives you a pretty decent interest rate if I'm not wrong uh, 2% or something um, that can be used to settle your basic you know necessities and, and, and needs for your for your child and uh, similar to the way you think about investing in uh, or leaving your money in uh, unfortunately it's a touchy subject like CPF uh, people often do forget that uh, you know some accounts within the CPF do give you a four percent return. That's honestly higher than a lot of what a lot of people can make by themselves on a sustainable uh, on a year by year basis, right? So I guess you know as Einstein most uh, famously said, compounding is the most powerful uh, force in the universe. Um, just by not touching the money and just by starting to invest for your children the day they are born will give them more than sufficient enough, uh, more than sufficient income to survive, you know, when they, when they come of age, right? So just simple things like that. But then uh, to really bring that portfolio further, I would do what I preach, which is to invest for them in growth companies and not really uh, yield-bearing yield uh, instruments, which, um, you know, will not really make or break the, the bank account, yeah. So tell me one thing that you know to be true, and it can be on anything at all, but which not many people will agree with you on. A lot of people think that um, you know the the safest thing anyone can do is to stay within a safe uh, corporate, to stay within a you know, established company. 
but I think uh, as the pace of change and the pace of uh, uh, disruption is going to accelerate even faster in the in the years to come, the only thing constant is is change, and therefore if you don't actually, and you know that you are in one of those industries whereby it can be disrupted by technology anytime soon, and you're not up for self improvement, uh, you know, taking a risk when you're younger to actually do something different, and only waiting till uh, you know disruption hits you at your doorstep before you react, you know, it's not not a pleasant thing to to hear, but um, it's something that um, we should all be very mindful of, and start making sure that we are constantly uh, evolving uh, to the needs of uh, this fast-changing economy. On that note, there's a lot of change in the banking and finance industry these days. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, Deutsche Bank recently did a complete restructure of the bank, mm -hmm. and these days, huge portions of public debt around the world's negative yielding. Mm. So with your background in the banking and the fundraising sector, how do you see finance evolving over the next 5 to 10 years? Sure, so I think maybe I'll answer the question from a slightly more theoretical point of view. So I think, you know, I spent seven years in investment banking and really one of the reasons why I left was because I felt that um, the capital markets or specifically the equity capital markets uh, is somewhat broken in, in the market. And, uh, you know, if you have seen how uh, Spotify and Slack did their direct listings recently, you would also, and if you have been in the finance industry, you understand that the uh, business of uh, investment banking is after all a business of uh, you know, optimizing along the risk reward curve uh, for, for most of these banks. And banks are in the business of risk, risk management and not necessarily investments. And therefore, you know, capital markets, if you think broad, broader, uh, is supposed to allocate capital from investors with excess uh, money to invest to companies that need uh, the extra capital for growth. Uh, the people right in the center deciding which companies uh, deserve their help to get access to the growth capital are investment banks. And as I mentioned, investment banks are optimizing along, along the risk reward curve. Um, you know, we break this uh, role for the, of the investment banks down into two time periods. The first time period is what I would call the pre-crisis, pre-2008 period, whereby any investment bank that brings a, uh, an offering to the market, pre-2008, if they could not sell the offering, they would usually take it on uh, balance sheets uh, therefore, there was a risk position involved for the bank, and therefore they could justify the kind of rewards that they, they needed. Right? However, post-2008, as we all know, uh, balance sheet investing is uh, frowned upon, and most banks, most investment banks have been restructured into uh, having very light balance sheet at risk. Right? So when that happened, if banks are not able to take on risk anymore, therefore then they should not theoretically be allowed to uh, uh, justify the kind of rewards they, they want. But these banks needed the kind of reward structure because their own internal cost structures built up from hiring many, many senior bankers over the years to cover uh, the finite number of uh, clients that are pursuing a public listing from a traditional point of uh, the word is still there. So the cost structure is fixed, and you're, you're, but you're taking less risk, and yet you needed the kind of rewards. It's really just, uh, you know, from a corporate finance theory point of view, it's not sustainable, right? So I think... Um, that is what I would say as an observation uh, about how you know eventually the whole industry needs to correct itself. It will correct itself. There is still a place for high-touch uh, traditional finance uh, professionals, but I think uh, as I think within within funnel, we do think that uh, the new world is private. More companies, more entrepreneurs will choose to stay private longer, and uh, companies going to market you know, like the likes of uh, Spotify and Slack 
uh, will see less uh, a need or a role for un traditional underwriters to play in their public offering, especially if uh, price discovery and subsequent liquidity can be met uh, outside of the public public equity capital markets, right? Um, therefore, the banks need to reimagine or rethink their their roles within the the broader capital markets. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about the death of the IPO market. So what do you think about the state of the Singapore stock market these days for retail investors? And if given a chance, how will you improve the Singapore? Um, you know, it's not necessarily the death of the the capital markets, but I think structurally the capital markets that was built. Uh, many years back was uh, built differently and, and therefore as a from a point of a structuring perspective uh, it is not structured to to support small offerings it is definitely not structured to support um, uh, smaller raises right so two things I think firstly um, you know many people um, complain about the Singapore exchange uh, saying that you know there's a lack of uh, good good companies to invest in uh, and there's a lack of liquidity as well uh, in the uh, SGX. However, I think you know liquidity is a mathematical formula that is literally the size of the daily uh, trading population, a portion of which is retail investors, uh, multiplied by the level of uh, interest that they have in trading what's listed on the exchanges. So the first uh, variant variable in the formula is actually demographic. It's a structural challenge that not just the SGX faces, but you know most. Uh, other exchanges in the region would face as well the, the shrinking uh, demographic of investors that are not on the public exchanges uh, but the second uh, variable in the formula which is the, what is uh, what they can make available uh, to be listed on the exchange um, you know by you know a lot of them uh, you know in Malaysia in, in Indonesia even in Hong Kong are actually thinking about lowering the listing requirements of uh, companies that are seeking a public listing and this ties back to my point about how structurally these exchanges were set up differently at different times. Um, if you do lower the listing requirements uh, for companies seeking a listing on the on the capital markets, you forget that by lowering the lowering the deal size, you're making you're you are also uh, implying that the fees to be made from supporting such offerings are going to be smaller. And yet, the people feeding the deals into the exchange exchanges, the banks, for instance, still have the same traditional cost structures <laughs> that they need to support, right? And therefore, by lowering the listing requirements and therefore lowering the deal sizes, uh, your, I mean, the, the exchanges are, are uh, maybe just solving one part of the problem, but not, uh, you know, really changing the way a structure in exchange can support uh, smaller private companies seeking growth capital. Um, and I think that's where having, the, having been given a chance to rebuild the capital markets from bottoms up, as opposed to tweaking the existing capital markets to support smaller offerings really makes a big difference. So, you know, at, at Funnel, we screen about 50 to 60 new uh, opportunities every week. We launch two deals every week um, with a team of five persons. And, you know, to put it into uh, perspective, for instance, in the first year we launched uh, Funnel in 2016, uh, Funnel, uh, Funnel's platform completed 15 transactions, uh, raising a total of 49 million US. Uh, the Singapore Exchange Catalyst Board supported 11 IPOs, raising about 77 mil in the same time period. But they needed 12 banks uh, to do the 11 deals. And imagine within the 12 banks, many, many human beings, and you sum up all the human beings, lawyers, accountants required to do a single offering. That is the listing fee or you know the minimum fee that not even counting profits that uh, a company would have to pay just to get access to growth capital on the equity capital markets. Uh, whereas for, for Funnel, we have 
three guys, right, during the same time period. So it's a different cost structure, and therein lies the difference between uh, adapting existing structure to support small offerings versus building a structure powered by technology to support small offerings. Uh, you know, that really makes a big difference. So there's a lot of talk about how we are in the later stages of the credit cycle, with the Fed's preparing to cut rates. How do you see this impacting companies who are looking to raise financing, and how is it going to affect investors and asset prices? It's interesting because, like uh, a few, a few, maybe even as as close to uh, late last year, we were thinking about rate hikes, right? And then now it's a totally different scene. But uh, I think you know, in general, people are getting a bit more cautious about investing in in equity. I believe in it's a zero sum game. So you know, when there is uh, fear in the markets, there are also more reasonable uh, sellers willing to actually liquidate their positions uh, or part of their monetize a part of their holdings uh, for a more reasonable uh, price as well. So that actually means that there are good deals to be done in the equity capital markets uh, for any buyer that is willing to take uh, a risk, right? So it's really about entry price, as uh, Warren Buffett would put it, and not really the exit price. So if you're able to, to, to still get access to um, good deals at um, good price, I think we should definitely go into it. Uh, and again, from a uh, cycle perspective is really about uh, diversifying your portfolio into a basket of private equity uh, companies that uh, previously did not have access to that will really make a difference in your 10-year horizon. If you had to introduce Funnel to a new investor, as simply as you can, what, what kind of returns, investing time frame and risk are we looking at? Okay, so I think you know equity investment is, is somewhat different from a credit loan. It, is, it doesn't have a finite uh, time frame. But I think most uh, studies that was uh, were published will, will talk about the efficient frontier. Uh, or basically, there was a, a study recently published by Cambridge Associates. You know, the average return over, over a certain amount of time for the past 10 years for private equity is usually around 7.7%. However, to get to the 7.7%, uh, one would have to have an allocation of at least 15% into uh, private equity, right? So that is something that um, I would I would focus uh, in allocating my portfolio into uh, and as cheap as possible, especially now with Vanguard coming into to play. Uh, this is really what we think is the future of um, investing. Yeah. So in terms of asset allocation, you mentioned that you see 15% mm. allocation to private capital as being the ideal Private equity, yeah. Mm. 15%? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, based on research, basically. So based on your experience, how should investors choose deals in a way that can maximize risk and reward? You know, it's really less about stock picking for the regular investor. In the previous study I quoted, 15% uh, return was made by institutional investors. So it's the, you know, the likes of the Soren Wealth Funds, the, the uh, professional private equity managers that we're talking about. So if even they um, are not making uh, spectacular returns on stock picks. I think as a regular person, we should definitely not try to stock pick, but really about diversifying into a portfolio uh, that is managed professionally, and therefore these managers would negotiate for better terms on our behalf. Um, so on the risk reward uh, spectrum, is really about to me really about diversifying and really about allocation. Yeah. So as the founder of Funnel, you probably see a huge number of companies coming to you guys for fundraising. So what's the one common factor that you see? for all successful companies on your plan. We're called Funnel because we see 50 to 60 deals uh, per week, uh, but the system actually weeds out 80% of these companies uh, based on a quantitative screening criteria, 
uh, that uh, gives us a score and tells us, us whether this company is uh, ranked above or below its peer set in the same industry or the same geography, thereby allowing our investment team to prioritize our time to spend uh, on the remaining 20%. And of the remaining 20%, uh, roughly about 5% is launched to the network of investors uh, and only about 1% is invested eventually. So to date, we have completed uh, 34 transactions, raising over 1.4 billion US. Um, and I think that's where um, you know, the commonality for all these deals is that firstly, they didn't start out trying to say that they're going to be the next unicorn, uh, but they're really uh, trying to make a difference to uh, the real economy that we live in. They're not trying to do, they're not all trying to do moonshots. Uh, you know, they're really solving problems that uh, you and I face as a regular person, right? So um, this is something that uh, I, would, I would advise any company that are tr that companies that are trying to raise from investors uh, in this part of the world. I'm not saying that moonshots are not possible. I mean, we, we did do two rounds of uh, space company uh, based out of the US. Uh, so those are really moonshots. But I think for investors in this part of the world, investors on our network, um, they are mostly looking for companies that have a little bit of attraction, a little bit of understanding of the region and some demonstrable uh, revenue uh, in the companies right now. How have you seen the financing and startup space in Singapore evolve since 2015? When we first started in 2015, uh, we started supporting a lot more moonshots, a lot more early stage companies. Um, you know that that um, that episode taught us that investors in this part of the world um, are not may not necessarily be um, uh, very receptive uh, to this uh, stage of companies right now, uh, but but that has since evolved, right? So um, companies that get more traction on our platform are mostly the later stage growth or pre-IPO type companies, um, and I think that as more liquidity events happen for earlier investors that invested in. Uh, you know the unicorns around our, our our region start to exit they will then need to redeploy the the new funds into new companies and therefore being able to support more more moonshots again right so we're coming close uh to to completing the cycle essentially and when that cycle uh, ends that's where uh, you know moonshots hopefully can be supported so what would your advice be to any startup that wants to raise financing now there's a bunch of reports out there going on about how analysts are looking at a possible 2020 recession mm -hmm. is that something that you agree with i don't i mean i'm not an economist but i think uh, you know there's always a possibility of a correction uh, and we should always prepare for for that right so which is why i think at least in this part of the world uh, what i can say uh, investors on our platform are um, slightly more cautious and therefore looking out for companies with uh, good execution and not just a, a you know okay idea i mean most ideas are honestly uh, just okay um, it's really about the execution right then it will make a difference yeah actually on that point there's mm. a famous saying that says ideas are cheap but execution is everything yep from your experience with funnel startup founder CEO is that something you would agree with uh, totally so I think um, for us when we first started it's really about uh, you know, making a difference not just to uh, us personally. I think it's really about how can I impact more people, give them access to capital markets for growth, right? And therefore, going all the way out to uh, countries without existing capital markets, right? It was a big, big idea. It was really about uh, disrupting the you know capital markets as we we see it. But we didn't. We did not start out trying to change like, every piece of it, right? We really focused on. Uh, doing the deals that would we think make a difference, and therefore building up the actual track record and revenues that um, 
give us the firstly the obviously the uh, experience track record and credibility uh, to be able to galvanize more to join us in this uh, movement um, it's really about showing that we can actually do it as opposed to um, talking about you know, the big picture from day one kind of thing even though we always had it in the back of our minds right so so in a perfect world what do you hope to achieve with Funnel 10 years from now yeah so I think for us we really want to be that alternative that companies uh, looking for growth capital consider as, a, as, a, as opposed to pursuing a traditional listing that may or may not suit their longer term uh, plans. As I mentioned earlier, I think the contrary to popular belief, uh, most companies do not go public uh, for new money. In fact, most uh, private companies don't actually raise uh, new money at their point of IPO. Um, but we think most companies uh, go public for two main reasons which is price discovery, how much am I worth at this point in time. So as a private company, uh, most people don't know that. Uh, you don't have the luxury of comparing different offers from different investors uh, and without having not just uh, a market agreed pricing, uh, you're not able to do a lot of uh, you know, M&As, you're not able to use a share price to, to buy stuff, right? So if I can give you price discovery without you actually going public, then as a market accepted price, which is why uh, uh, together, together with Flip Securities and Prime Partners, uh, we launched the HG Exchange. Uh, we filed a submission to the MES to launch the HG Exchange earlier this year. Uh, we can now help private companies access uh, price discovery on an exchange that the market will accept. Right, and the second reason why companies go public for uh, is subsequent liquidity. So, can I help your uh, you know, employees, founders, early investors uh, get out? and therefore reducing the pressure uh, of these guys to return money to LPs and forcing the companies to go uh, pursue an exit opportunity which may or may not fit their longer term plans, right? The subsequent liquidity part is exactly what we need uh, the exchange uh, to perform and that's why um, we think that in 10 years time, if HG Exchange together with the technologies that Funnel built can support such capital raisings for uh, the next generation of entrepreneurs that are starting their own companies and next generation investors to invest in this uh, asset class, uh, and really make a difference to uh, countries without capital markets and therefore giving them capital to hire people um, and really you know creating jobs for instance uh, would have really be, um, basically I mentioned like you know you ask yourself after you become a father like what would you tell your, your kids I would then be able to tell them that uh, I tried uh, to apply what I've learned in traditional finance and build something which will help uh, create jobs for the future and really propel um, countries out of um, their current uh, lack of opportunities for, for growth. Yeah. So Kevin, thanks for sharing your thoughts. We've come to the end of the Financial House podcast. But before we end off, if you could go give one piece of advice to a 25-year-old investor in one sentence, what would that be? The only thing you have uh, as a young investor is, is time. And you, you have an abundance of energy right now. So really, please don't be afraid to uh, take a risk and experiment. Uh, you know, this, if you don't do it now, then, then when any, the opportunity cost will only get higher uh, with age and it's not going to ever get lesser. Mm-hmm.